the seat. Welcome to RUF, you guys. My name is Sammy. I'm the uh, campus minister here. And if you've been with us, uh, you know we're doing a series on the life of Peter. And what I love about it is I love this idea that we get to look at Jesus and what he's like through the eyes of one of his best friends. So that's what we did last week. We were looking at that passage where Jesus actually comes to Peter and his friends, and he calls them away from their fishing business, and he tells them you're going to now be Peter, especially you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to help men get caught up, men and women get caught up in the glory of of who I am and what I'm doing. Well, tonight is a, is a familiar passage. If you grew up in the church, it's, it's a weird one. Uh, it's one where Jesus is doing something that seems really weird, and then Peter joins him in that. And so I'm going to read for us Matthew 14, uh, verses 22 to 33, to get um, this scene from the life of Peter, and then let's learn from it. So Matthew 14, 22 to 33, it's in your, uh, inside of your bulletin. Here's what Matthew writes. <clears throat> So this is just after the feeding of the 5,000, and Matthew says, Immediately after that, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, in the middle of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking, on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And here's Peter. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out, come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for this scene in the life of Peter. And I pray that you would send your spirit even now. Um, to do what we just sang, to speak to us. Lord, um, we thank you for the good news that you have brought to us and still bring to us, that you really do pursue us. Uh, You speak to us in the place that we are, not in the places we're pretending to be. Um, You know us through and through. You know all of the anxieties we bring tonight. You know the stresses we bring. You know the shame that we bring. You know the boredom that we bring. You know the resistance and the running from you that we bring. Um, You know the indifference that we bring. You know the selfishness that we bring. Uh, You know the anger that we bring and the sadness that we bring, the depression that we bring. You You know us. You know how we come tonight. So would you be gracious and take this passage from thousands of years ago in the life of your friend Peter and would you bring it home to us? Uh, would you put us in the place of Peter? Would you teach us? Would you speak to us? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I was thinking about this passage today and how do I want to approach it. I was thinking about my wedding day and how on my wedding day, I almost there was this moment where I almost missed what I think everyone would say is the most important part of the groom, for the groom on the wedding day. 
and that's the moment where his bride, the doors open, and you know how it is, like everyone processes down, and the, you know, I follow the, the, the pastor out, and you stand there, and then as time, you do a little signal, the pastor does, and everyone stands, and you look at the back doors, and it's the moment where the doors bust up, burst open, and there's your bride. Well, here I was in my tux, and, you know, I was a little sunburned. It's another story for another time, because I'd gone to a, a tanning bed the night before, which is a long story for another time. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable, but I, for whatever reason, when I was following the pastor out, I didn't quite, so this is the aisle, like I didn't quite follow him all the way. It was like I stopped right here, and he, he had to, one moment, like right before the door, almost as the doors opened, say, get over here. So I like stepped and saw, and, did, and thankfully didn't miss the moment, but I almost did. This is how I want to do this tonight, and then we can say this in any sermon, but especially tonight, I want you to not miss two things, first about Jesus, and then about Peter. Um, I, d- I don't want you to miss two incredible things, two glorious things about first Jesus and then Peter. That's how the passage breaks down. The first, literally, the five verse, first five verses are completely about Jesus and what he's doing. And then the second five verses are completely about uh, Peter and what he's doing. So let's look at it that way. So first, what do I not want you to miss about Jesus? And here's the first thing I want you to see. I don't want you to miss the limits of his humanity. The limits of his humanity. So here's the scene. Jesus has just taught been fed 5,000 people, a huge crowd. And it's a beautiful line. It says he stayed around. He didn't just bolt. He stayed around, dismissed them, which meant he shook hands and kissed babies. And then there was a time, though, where it being really, really tired, he sent his disciples on to the next destination, Gennesaret, and he said, I need some alone time. I need some time to rest. I need some time by myself to go be with the Father, just to be, just to be. Maybe take a nap, pray, etc. And this is the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the perfect picture of humanity. And the first thing you have to understand about following Jesus is what he's inviting you into is to live and honor the limits of your humanity. To to honor the limits of what it means to be made human, to be made in the image of God, to be made in the frailty of humanity. This is what this means. This means that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. This means sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go see a movie by yourself or go for a hike by yourself, depending on if you're an indoorsy person or an outdoorsy person. This means sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed tonight at at 10 o'clock. That might be a stretch, 11 o'clock after a large group because you probably need some time to wind down if you're like me. That sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to honor the limits of your humanity. And this is a tension. No one got this tension better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer who fought Nazi Germany uh, and when Hitler's day, and here's what Bonhoeffer wrote about this in his famous book, Life Together. He said this. He said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. To follow Jesus means to know your limits and to live within them. Um, So here's the first question is, where are you trying to do too much? Maybe even in the name of Jesus. And where are you trying to do too little? Maybe in the name of Jesus. Um, An illustration that I love from my friend Sid Drew, and he's at Davidson, that he he used that I love from this pastor, Joe Novenson, who's a pastor some of you know, in Lookout Mountain, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Joe's uh, pretty open about struggling with anxiety and depression. Uh, he's in his 60s now, but he's been very open for years about what that's been like in the life, his life as a pastor, the inner struggle, the inner storm, if you will. 
And he has a story where he talks about his daughter, Ellie, one of the first places where he recognized his daughter, Ellie, was a teenager. She'd gone into her room. She'd shut the door. She'd been in her room for a long time. So Joe, being a good dad, knocked on the door, and he went in, and he could see in his daughter's face the same inner storm of anxiety and depression that he'd faced his whole life. And he was, in that moment, as a parent, it's a hard moment where you realize you kind of have given this, genetically at least, if not behaviorally, to your kids, and how do you parent it? And he said in this moment of inspiration, he had this idea. And he went downstairs, and he got a foam cup, and he got a wine glass. And he came upstairs, and he said, Ellie, I want you to take this foam cup and throw it as hard as you can against the wall. And she took it, and she threw it, and it obviously barely drifted and just touched the wall and then fell. And then he said, now I want you to take this wine glass, and I want you to throw it as hard as you can against the wall. And she said, Dad, if I do that, it's going to shatter. He said, I know. So she threw it as hard as she could against the wall, and of course it shattered into a million pieces. And then here's what Joe went on to say. He says, see, Ellie, there are two, basically two different kinds of people that carry God's image and glory. Uh, basically, you have foam cut people and wine glass people. Neither is wrong, neither is better than the other, but they are different. The foam cut person is durable. He or she is great in a crisis, the person you always call to pick you up at 2 a.m. in the morning, and they are hard to break. But... They write terrible symphonies and make bad poets, generally. But the wine glass person is sensitive. He or she writes beautiful symphonies, thoughtful poems, but that person struggles mightily to be reliable in a crisis because they are fragile. There's a lot of confusion going on under the surface in their minds and hearts. And then he looked at his daughter and he said, Ellie, you and I are wine glass people living in a foam cup world, and we need foam cup people. And part of what it means to live within the limits of your humanity is to know your your personality, to know are you a foam cup person or a wine glass person, to know that both, we both, need, we need each other. Part of what it means to live in the limits of our humanity is to do that this is a community project. Like, we need each other to learn how to do this. So first, Jesus is inviting us in the in being perfect in the image of, of, of God, but fully man. He, he shows us the limits of humanity, but then he also shows us the glory of his divinity. This is what I don't want you to miss about Jesus, is here he is needing rest, needing a nap, needing alone time, needing to be by himself. And then at the next moment, Jesus is doing something even that's totally different and yet beautiful. So here he is, Jesus is alone, but he sees, he knows what's going on with his disciples. That's always the way it is with Jesus. He always, he sees, he knows in the most beautiful way. And he sees that his friends are caught in this really, really hard storm. It's the second storm. They've actually been in a storm together where Jesus was in the boat with them. This is a storm after that, which is really, really interesting and important to remember when we get to Peter. So he sees him in this massive storm, and he, he decides he wants to go to his friends. This is how it is with Jesus. He doesn't promise us to, that we're not going to he, He's the one who sent them into the storm. He doesn't promise us that we're not going to be in storms, but he does promise us that he will be with us in the storm. He doesn't promise storms aren't coming, but he does promise he will be with us, and he never breaks his promises. And so here's Jesus. He begins to walk run maybe we don't know but over the water to get to his friends and this is the image that is incredibly powerful that i don't want you to miss is jesus is kind of doing there are these three kind of interwoven hints at what this means the first is jesus is playing on these images from the old testament here just listen to him for a second one is printed on on your bulletin he's playing on three different images from the old testament first job 9 8 where it says about god he alone stretches out the heavens and treads in the waves of the sea and then second, Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen, where it says about God, your path led through the sea and your way through the mighty waters, though your, foot, your footprints were not seen. 
And then finally, Isaiah 43, 2, which we sing sometimes here, where it says about the Lord, when you pass this, the Lord speaking to his people, and he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. What I want you to see is Jesus first is fulfilling in person these promises that are images giving to God's people in the Old Testament, which is why Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is bringing to life these very beautiful images from the Old Testament, but there's more. He's doing more. The other thing, this is in Mark's account. When Mark tells the story, there's this weird detail that Peter gives them that says when Jesus came up, came up on them in the middle of the night where they were scared to death, like the kind of scare where things come out of your body scared, like scared like they didn't know how to explain it, but there was a, they think it's a ghost at first. And Mark has this detail where it says, at first it looked like he went to pass by them. And this is really, really important. Because that would make the disciples, Peter himself, think there was another passage in Exodus 33 where Moses, remember he's fed the people. He's given the manna in the desert in the wilderness. And there's that moment where he is discouraged and he says, Lord, will you show me your glory? And you remember the scene, Exodus 33, it's a weird passage. And God takes Moses and he says, let me hide you in this rock because if I were to show you the fullness of my glory, you would die. And he hides him in the rock and it says the glory of God just passed by and Moses just catches just part, the, just part of the glory of God. And this is what Jesus is, is, is fulfilling in this way. He's been like Moses and he's fed the people, but now he's being like the God of Moses. And he's almost passing them by because he's revealing to them the glory of a God who alone can walk on the sea. But there's even more. And I promise there's a point. Stay with me. The even more part is Jesus. It's interesting the way that Matthew, he says what he says when he comes up on them. He says immediately, take courage. And it's translated in our passage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is always speaking words of comfort in the face of their terror. But that word, it is I, is better translated. You can't miss it in the Greek. And he's saying, he's taking on himself. He basically says, I am. He's taking on his lips the I am of God. Remember when Moses goes to God and says, when God comes to Moses and says, go set my people free. And Moses says, who, will, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am. It's the name Yahweh that the Jews won't even say because it was such the divine name being given to Moses. And Jesus takes this on himself. And he's saying, not only do you, limits of humanity, absolutely, but that's, that's not it. I want you to see the glory of my divinity. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the same person who needed to nap and pray is also the great I am? one with the Father and the Spirit. Why does it matter? Uh, Here's the best I could do. So everyone, all we can talk about right now, rightfully so, is the refugee crisis. And I know in this room there are probably lots of different political points, and I'm not trying to make a political point, but I do want to make a theological point. Um, You know, when you think about, put yourself for a moment in in the life, in the in the shoes of a refugee. And I want you just to think for a moment that here you are and you're fleeing uh, your country because it's been torn by war or terrorism and literally you've, you've lost your home, like literally lost your home most likely. All you have is the clothes on your back and you're desperately trying to get somewhere, somewhere safe, somewhere that can take care of you, somewhere you can maybe find a new life, temporary or not, and you're trying to get your loved ones with you. It's a desperate time, right? I mean, we can't imagine, most of us can't imagine how desperate 
we would feel, how afraid we would feel. And when I was thinking about what is the good news of Jesus if I'm a refugee, if you're a refugee? And I think a lot of us would start with, we could start with this. this Jesus is the, he is the I am. Who came to Moses and said, set my people free. Go gather these slaves, these refugees. Come get them. Go set them free. We can say Jesus is a God who loves refugees. And he's a God who's still in control of the wind and the waves. And we could say that even though we don't understand how your country and why this evil is being done and why it is that you're having to flee and why it is that you've lost so much, we can say that God somehow is still the God who loves and helps and cares and sees and moves toward refugees, right? There's, there's something that's basic Christianity. One, and we can say Jesus is a God who loves and cares about refugees. And so we can put ourselves as a refugee in the place of Peter that we're about to get to where we feel like we're sinking and drowning and we can cry out, Lord, save me. You have the resources and the power and the love to save me, to make, bring me into safety, bring my loved ones into safety. He's sovereign and gracious in that way. But here's what I want you to see. There's even better news. And this is the importance of Jesus' humanity. It is the same God who claims to love refugees was a refugee. That our Savior can honestly relate, literally relate. Do you remember the scene? Right after he's born, Herod hears about him, and he decides to commit mass genocide of firstborn babies, and, and Joseph and Mary take Jesus, and they flee. They have to flee to Egypt for safety. This is the beauty of Jesus. And I want you to see the uniqueness of Jesus. There's no other God that we can say this about that could both say he's the only God who loves and cares about refugees who was himself a refugee. And it matters. He relates to us in his humanity and his, he has in his, in his divinity. So what I don't want you to miss about Jesus, but there are also two things I don't want you to miss about Peter. And this is what gets interesting when we think about the Christian life, living this life with Jesus. There are two things, I think, in the story of Peter here, the last five verses that are incredibly important and super interesting. And I just want to do first the feats of faith and then second the failures of faith. This is always the cycle. Peter and what he does. So Jesus comes, he's walking on the water. And then Peter in this moment of utter Peterness, of utter impulsive, really kind of, even if it's got mixed motivations, a beautiful response of faith. He, he looks at Jesus, he recognizes him, he says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come. And first we get the feats of faith. And the feat of faith that Peter happens here is literally Peter transcends gravity and he walks on the water. And it's a moment that is weird. Like, what do we do with this? Because the application is not an easy one. Like, I can't be like, all right, guys, in true faith, Thomas Cooper, five minutes after RUF, we're going to try to walk on water. Like, there, how do we apply this? Well, here's how I think it applies. I think in my cynicism is what I kept wrestling with today. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't rebuke him for this. He's not like, Peter, what are you doing, you idiot? He actually empowers Peter to do this. Did you catch that? I mean, it's a beautiful thing. The, the first, what's happening here? There are two things we kind of have to get. First, Peter recognizes about Jesus that whatever Jesus commands, he can empower him to do. That if Jesus commands it, he can also empower Peter to do it. It's a profound truth. That's why Augustine would say, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Utter reliance upon the power of Jesus to do what he's, to, for us to do what he's commanded us to do. And this is the thought I kept having was, I want you to see, like, part of this should be inspiring to us. Like, I literally, I was thinking about, I think at one point last semester, I, I said to you, if you come to RUF and, ho- and plan on getting inspired, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> and I was thinking about that, and I know what I meant by that. What I meant by that was, I don't want you to leave in self-trust and trusting in yourself and thinking that the Christian life is all feats 
and no failures. That's what I mean by that. But can we balance and say Peter really did walk on water and that there really is a kind of inspiration where we're looking to Jesus to do wonderful, beautiful things in our lives that should be inspiring? Like if you're leaving RUF inspired about yourself, you haven't heard the gospel. But you should leave RUF inspired by Jesus. And I need you to hold me to that, that Jesus really is risen. You have to tell myself, my wife has to tell me, you know, Jesus isn't dead anymore. Like, you can be cynical. I get you like darkness. He really is alive. Like, he really has, he did these things and continues to work by his power and grace in the world. Um, Jesus, who walked in water, led Peter, even for a moment, to walk on water. And I think the second thing that's going on here is part of what's happening is, why, how did he walk on water? I can't begin to explain that to you. I don't know. Can we leave room for mysteries? I love the way that Rankin Wilburn will say, Sometimes when you try to explain a try, trying to explain a mystery is like trying to explain a joke. You could do it, but it kind of ruins it. Same. Like I don't know how it happened. Jesus, how Jesus did it, or Peter did it. But here's what I think the point is. I think the the other thing we have to get is that Peter, for a moment, through faith, a faith that was entrusting himself to Jesus. Faith is not a work. Faith is simply an instrument that unites you to Jesus and the power of Jesus. That for a moment. He was in touch with something that was more real than reality, more real than what's empirically proven, provable, or repeatable. Um, By faith and trusting himself to the power of Jesus, he literally for a moment transcended the laws of gravity. He got in touch with something more. Why? Because he got in touch with something more real than gravity or or the reality behind gravity. He, He got in touch with the gracious work of Jesus in the world. He got in touch with the gravity behind gravity, with the hidden reality, the hidden power of the saving work of Jesus in, in our behalf. Uh, and here's the way that I, how does this apply? All right, so I love it's in your bulletin. Michael Card says it like this. Because what do we do with this? Here's what I think we do with this. Here's what he says. He says, when I look at the world, I will always have reason to doubt. Gravity, cancer, poverty, they are all real. But Jesus continually calls to Peter and to you and me to look somehow beyond all that to a new reality where walking on the water is also real and feeding thousands of people with a few crumbs and rising from the dead are all also real. And so the question I've been asking myself today is the same question I'm asking you. Where are you at least attempting to follow Jesus into the water? Because the reality for me is I think I'm so cynical that I'm in the boat. And I think, "Mm -mm, people don't walk on water. Or I think, "Mm, I'd rather... Because I know I'm going to sink at some point, I'd rather just not try. And Jesus is like, no, where are you following me and doing something that only I can do that is part of bringing the hidden reality of the kingdom of God in powerful ways into this world? Uh, the way I was thinking about it, as I mentioned two weeks ago, we had a dear friend from seminary. Her name is Ruth Samuelson. I think I read to you from her husband's The Caring Bridge, what he was saying about her. Well, she ended up, she died uh, a week and a half ago and the funeral was last Friday and the pastor said two things that I thought were getting in touch with us and here's what he said about her he said here's she was interesting she was in politics and here's what was really interesting about her she was on the one hand incredibly she had been raped and was very open about being raped and she was but she was an incredible advocate for uh, for um, life in the womb but she was also an incredible advocate for uh, conservation of land and it was this really odd mix because typically you, you have to choose between something that's more Republican or Democratic, and yet she just had what was a woman of deep conviction and didn't simplify her faith when it came to politics. But here's what the, her pastor said. 
He says she wagered everything she did or said on the veracity of the word of God, whether in public or in private, and she bet her entire life on the fact that Jesus earned heaven for her. And my thought was she, throughout her life, walked on water. There were moments where you could see this beautiful trust in Jesus. It was Jesus' power in her, absolutely. But there were moments where the grace, the power of grace in her life was so obvious that it was as if she was walking on water. But then, of course, that's not where it ends with Peter. This is the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see the failures of faith. And this is where I think, you know, we have to get both. This is the Christian life. Walking on water and then sinking and drowning so much that all you can do is cry, Lord, save me. It's Paul in Romans 7, where Paul has been so triumphant in the first six chapters about what it means to know Jesus. And then he finally says in Romans 7, also, I really struggle. I struggle so much to do what I want to do and not do what I don't want to do that all I can do at the end of the day, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this wretched body of death? Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you're, you know, save me. That's what Peter cries here, save me. He begins to walk in water, but then you see he's overwhelmed by the winds and the waves. He's overwhelmed by the storm. And he begins to sink and he begins to drown. And this is true, right? We can say, like, one of the applications of this is the storms of life do this. Whether they're external, things going on in your life right now, or they're internal. Anxiety, depression, OCD. There's thing, there are times in our life where they seem to overwhelm us, where they seem, where they do overwhelm us because they seem bigger to us than Jesus or his promises, or more real to us than Jesus or his promises. And I want you to see, this is where, what most sermons say, right? Most sermons say, if you've ever heard a sermon preaching this, like I've ever heard it preaching this, they say this, something like this. See, Peter, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, was walking in water. As soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus, he started drowning. What a shame application keep your eyes on jesus and we kind of ignored like the drowning part just keep your eyes on jesus and and this is certainly like a a good point to be made one of the keys of getting anywhere in the christian life is to keep your eyes on jesus absolutely but what if that's not the point of this passage what if the point of this passage is that peter started to drown what if the point of this passage is that it wasn't Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, but what if the point of this passage is that Jesus kept his eyes on Peter? And the moment he began to drown, do you see, do you see that moment? This is where we don't typically get to. Jesus, knowing it was going to happen, reached out to him, grabbed him, and he immediately tenderly begins to ask him about his faith. But what if that's actually the point? What if the immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him is actually the point? And this is what I think is true. The only way you'll ever learn to keep your eyes on Jesus and to walk on water is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, to actually believe that in the moments where you're drowning and overwhelmed and failing, that Jesus never takes his eyes off of you. And that he stands ready to catch you and to set you back up on that water again to keep walking. And then you sink again and he catches you. And to put you back up to keep walking on water and he catches you. What if that's the point? What if the point is the grace of Jesus is that good and that true? That no matter how many times you sink and drown, he always picks you back up in his grace and mercy and puts you back on that water again. I love the way that Matthew Henry said it. He said, Christ bid him come, not only that he might walk upon the water and so know Christ's power, absolutely, but that he might sink and so know his own weakness. For as he would encourage his faith, so he would check his self-confidence. I'll close with this. I've almost drowned twice only i was gonna say only twice in my life um 
the most recent time was a few years ago. I was in the river float. Scott was there. He was a sophomore. And I, I got caught in one of those, like the river was up that day, and I got caught in a rapid. I fell out. I mean, I lost my contacts. I lost shoes. I brought a towel with me because I didn't know what I was doing. And I literally for a moment thought I was going to drown in that river, leading an REF river float. I've had two horrible river float experiences. Some of you have been on one of them uh, this past year. And I, we're never going to do it again. But that was a moment where I really I thought I was going to drown, and Scott and his wife Carly kind of brought me to and, and saved me. But the other moment, the first moment, was when I was 10 or 11 years old. The only time my family ever went camping was this one time in Chimney Rock. And I remember it vividly because we never went camping again after this moment. And I remember we got there, we set up the tent, and it was, I guess it was a summer day. So we got our bathing suits in, went with my dad to play in this river. And I guess the way rivers work, you've got to kind of cross the current. So my dad took me and my, I guess, six-year-old sister at the time, and he got us in his arms, and he swam across the current with us and we played on like the calm side of the river for a while well then eager to prove himself 10 year old me was like okay dad i think i can cross that current by myself i don't need you i got this and i went tried to swim across this current and i got caught up in the current and immediately swept off of my feet and in my you know like i don't it's hard to know i need to ask my dad actually how serious was it because all i really remember in my 10 year old mind was i'm gonna die like i kept envisioning the kind of waterfall at the end of cartoons where you're like (laughs) you just fall off and die like there's no other option so i I mean i'm terrified like i am a 10 year old worldview i am terrified And, and as i'm trying to make sense of what's happening all i can hear is my dad shouting and he shouts grab a rock grab a rock and i can hear him catch a rock out of the corner of my eye and i grab him to the shrock and I pull myself up and I'm like pull myself into safety and my parents rushed to come get me uh, c- c- caught my breath and I think you know in that moment this, what, what, why am I telling this in that moment I think we could say I went out in this foolish uh, self-confidence but was brought back by this voice of this person that deeply loved me and for me it's an image of the Christian life it's an image of the moments where we go from walking on water to drowning, but then there's that voice who calls us back, but he's more than a voice. Can I give you this image? It's a weird image. He's also the, he is the rock, but he's a rock that can grab you. And it's a rock that grabs you and pulls you to himself out of the terror that we're feeling in the storm, and he brings you to himself in the safety of forgiveness and the power of his grace. And then he sets you back on the water to walk on water again. And my friends, this is the rest of your life. I'm 36 years old. This is the Christian life. But the good news is even in those moments where we take our eyes off of Jesus, which will come. Some of you are here tonight, but your eyes are not in Jesus. The good news for us is Jesus never once takes his eyes off of you. And he stands ready to catch you and to bring you to himself and to set you upon the water again. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for the good news of the way you are toward not just Peter, but to us. I pray that uh, in your love and wisdom uh, that you would take this and let our hearts chew in it and you would plant your word deeply in our hearts that that we might um, produce fruit that is beautiful to the world and pleasing to you. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.